Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hi, welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. Today we're very lucky and honored to have Dr. Sarah Myhill come back. She gave us last June some very clear tools on how people can get well and care for themselves. Very simple things that anybody can do any day and avoiding very expensive medical tests. Anyway, Dr. Sarah Myhill, qualified in medicine with honors from Middlesex Hospital Medical School in 1981. And since then, has focused tirelessly on identifying and treating underlying causes of health problems, particularly the diseases of civilization with which we are beset in in the West. She's worked for the NHS, the National Health Service in the UK, and private practice for seven, or at least 17 years. I was the Honorary Secretary of the British Society for Ecological Medicine, renamed from the British Society for Allergy, Environmental, and Nutritional Medicine. This is a medical society interested in looking at the causes of disease and treating these causes through diet, vitamins, minerals, and avoiding toxic stress. She helps to run lecture and lectures at the society's training courses and will be lecturing short, pretty quickly because there's a seminar coming up for any people interested. And she's also involved in training courses. She lectures regularly on the organophosphate poisoning, the problems of silicone, and chronic fatigue syndrome. She's made many appearances on the TV and radio. So welcome. We are honored to have you here. Oh, well, it's very nice of you to invite me back. You, you're such a good presenter because you ask all the right questions. Well, I mean, well, because you have all the right answers. But, you know, much of medicine, this is just general for the audience, much of medicine focuses on symptom suppression. It's like sick care, disease management, pill for nil. Yep. I mean, I don't know how well that serves us, but functional medicine looks at, tries to look at, uh, under the hood and looking at the causes for diseases. But these involve many yep. expensive tests, and you know, so Sarah has devised a way around that. Another comment I notice is symptoms tend to protect us from ourselves. When we're tired, mm-hmm. we would keep working till we die, you know, if we didn't sleep for 11 days. Uh, anxiety yep. tells us there's something in our life we need to look at. I mean, here in this country, you give pills to get rid of mucus plugs, but those are there to get the bacteria out. We give pills mm-hmm. to bring down the infection. I understand the fever helps get us well. And these anti-inflammatory drugs, they reduce the immune response. So what mm-hmm. I notice, I mean, Sarah's just written a new book, The Infection Game. What I notice from many past lecturers, Mark Houston has mentioned that heart disease and other vascular conditions are the result involving three steps but has 400 risk factors, including disease, inflammation, and viruses. Anthony Haynes in London has done work showing that viruses can be behind inflammation and oxidative stress, which leads to many of our diseases. So I think infections, viruses, and bacteria are causes contributing diseases that we often overlook, and these might be viruses we came in contact decades ago, such as Epstein-Barr, Lyme, etc. So you say that infections drive modern Western diseases, Sarah? 
Indeed, yes. And when I, interestingly, I was put onto this idea by a very good friend of mine who's a vet. And he made the comment, and it was, it was really a comment in passing, that most diseases in animals um, are, are infection-driven. And so that, you know, made me think very much, of course. And so I started to research this and, of course, apply this in my clinical practice. And there is an infectious associate with almost every disease of Westerners that you care to mention. So, for example, um, dementia is driven by um, um, many bacteria and many viruses. I mean, the best example, of course, is syphilis. Um, um, uh, and that was then called um, um, general paralysis of the insane when they developed their dementia. But we know, for example, that Lyme disease is associated with dementia. So is toxoplasmosis. So are the herpes viruses, particularly one and two. So is cytomegalovirus, cryptococcus, cystoscosis, and so on and so forth. Um, arterial disease that has a number of infectious drivers. I mean, the most obvious is oral infection. If you've got terrible gum disease and dental infections, then you're at risk of arterial disease. But then herpes viruses, Helicobacter pylori, chlamydia, cytomegalovirus, etc. These all have an infectious associate. And again, most cancers have an infectious associate. So, for example, stomach cancer, we know that's associated with Helicobacter pylori. Esophageal cancer, we know that's associated with human papillomavirus. You know, the colon, I suspect that is um, um, what I call fermenting gut-related. You know, oral cancer, gum disease, gallbladder, salmonella, and so on, and cervical cancer, of course, with human papillomavirus. So I've come to the view that... Um, um, the infections are there somewhere along the line with all um, modern disease. And, of course, the reason they get in there in the first place is because our immune systems are down. And the problem with modern Western life is it's, um, um, it's immunotoxic. Uh, you know, the, the, the diets that we eat, um, the interventions that we make, such as vaccination, all serve to um, upset the immune system and make it less well able to deal with infections. Wow. It's interesting because uh, Mark Houston and Anthony Haynes, who have been on the show, talk about viruses and infections causing and contributing to just about every arterial disease, which would hold true for dementia. So what's interesting is we can get titers of these uh, viruses, et cetera, that they're in our body, but that doesn't give us any indication that they're stirring up any trouble. So how do we assess well, whether they're the cause of trouble? Well, that, that's absolutely right. And um, I'm increasingly coming to the view that um, the emphasis should not be on what disease, which microbe, but as I call it, on improving the defenses. Because the point is, if, if you have got one microbe in the body that shouldn't be there, then you will have other microbes in the body for the same reason. And so I'm coming to the view that the starting point to treat any infection and, or any disease process, and it really doesn't matter what that disease process is, is we should be, as I call it, improving the defenses, i.e. helping the body to fight that infection itself without help from antibiotics, antivirals, antimicrobials, eye drug medicine. I mean, the point here being is that, you know, we have evolved, you know, life has evolved over millions of years as part of an arms race. 
if, if you are a microbe or a, if you're a bacteria or a virus or um, a, a fungus, the best thing you can do is to parasitize another organism. Why? It's a free lunch. I mean, if a bacteria can make itself at home in my in my gut, for example, then it's very well looked after. It's kept nice and warm. It's given lots of lovely food because I'm eating food. It's kept nice and moist because, you know, um, there's lots of water available. It has a very nice life. Now, of course, some of those microbes we have learned to live with, and this isn't parasitosis, this is symbiosis. They are very helpful to us. They do good to us. But increasingly our bodies are being invaded by microbes that are not doing good for us. They are driving pathology, they are driving inflammation, and they're causing a whole host of diseases, including degenerative disease. And what has allowed these microbes to get in, as I say, are Western diets and Western lifestyles. The subtitle to the book is Life is an Arms Race. You and I are a free lunch. And um, most of the book is all about what we can do to improve our natural defenses in order to keep these infections at bay. And you know, as I get older and perhaps wiser, although I have to say my daughters doubt that very much, um, what I find is that the simple things done really well get us a long way there. And what kind of triggered me onto this, this path of thought is I started seeing uh, many patients who had been to other doctors with a chronic fatigue syndrome and they'd been diagnosed with Lyme disease or they'd been diagnosed with chronic Epstein-Barr virus or whatever and they had received the standard package of treatment which might be a package of antibiotics or it might be antivirals or antifungals or whatever and they were no better. Now it's not that the diagnosis was wrong. The point here is that those expensive prescribable antimicrobials are, as they call it, the icing on the cake. Uh, they are an extra bit of assistance to the body's own immune defenses. But if you can improve the immune defenses, then maybe you don't need those antimicrobials at all. Or if it comes to the state where you do, we actually do need those antimicrobials, having everything else in place to improve the defenses, i.e. the diet, the micronutrients, the gut microbiome, and so on, Having all that in place will give you the best chance of getting rid and defeating any infection that you may have. Well, isn't giving an antimicrobial or antibiotic, doesn't that risk uh, affect the microbiome of the gut, which might give the uh, bad bugs a leading edge? Absolutely. You know, I mean, um, as, as I try to make the point in the book, the um, antibiotics, they're the kind of um, the, the atomic warfare of fighting infection. Now, we know atomic warfare is very effective at killing the enemy, but it also kills yourself as well. It's a bit of a two-edged sword. So um, the emphasis on treating any patient is, as Hippocrates famously said, you know, first, do no harm. You must choose interventions um, that are as safe as reasonably possible, but of course, you know, known to be effective. Now, there will be occasions when patients will need, as I call it, the neutron bomb, that they will need antibiotics or antimicrobials, in, uh, antivirals, in order to get well. But I wouldn't want to put those sort of interventions in place until everything else was in place first, i.e. the diet, the micronutrient supplements, improving the energy delivery mechanisms, the good quality sleep, sorting out the gut microbiome, and so on and so forth. 
And what I try to do in um, uh, the infection game is detail those interventions that anybody can do. That, you know, I've now worked out after 38 years of clinical practice that I can't heal the world on, on my own. Um, um, but what I can do is I can give you the rules of the game and the tools of the trade to allow people to get themselves an awful, you know, an awful long way down the road. And these are powerful tools. Tools. They are not easy to put in place. They may well entail major lifestyle changes with respect to diet or supplements or, or whatever, but they are very doable. And um, um, in fact, the whole book leads up to three key chapters. And I call these chapters groundhog chapters. And I call them groundhog chapters because I talk about these, these things all the, all, the, all the time. And it's the old story, always go back to, to groundhog to get the basic package of treatment in place. It's a little bit like building a house. You know, um, If you're going to build a house, you've got to have the foundation stones in place. There's no point talking about the fancy upstairs windows or the posh chimney until you've got the foundation stones in place. And groundhog chapters are all about the foundation stones. And there's groundhog basic I talk about, which is what we should all be doing just to um, improve our defenses and keep disease at bay. And then there's groundhog acute. And groundhog acute is what we should all be doing at the first symptom of any infection. So a little tickle in the throat, the first sneeze, a little bit of cystitis, gas gastroenteritis or whatever, we should be putting in place groundhog acute interventions. And then groundhog chronic, they're the interventions we should put in place when we know we've, we are dealing with an infectious load, whatever that infectious load may be. And my experience is that those groundhog interventions done very well get you an awful long way there. And all those groundhog interventions are within the powers of us all. We don't need doctors. Um, we don't need expensive medications. We can all do it ourselves. You are giving our audience such a treat. I mean, you make things so simple, so beautiful, that we can each get better. And, I mean, you, you're making such a great contribution to health. So you comment that this um, interaction we have with these pesky infections and viruses, it's a war. Mm -hmm. So you just comment yes. there's uh, ways to avoid the acute pathology and a way to avoid the microbe installing in our body long term. Could you yes. go into these, uh, the, the acute groundhog and the chronic groundhog uh, in a little more detail? With pleasure. Now, we, but we, I mean, we should all be starting off, and all listeners should um, be doing, as I call it, groundhog basic. Now, I don't do anything. Um, I don't recommend anything for my patients without doing it myself. Uh, and the bottom line is the starting point for groundhog basic, for groundhog acute, for groundhog chronic is the paleo ketogenic diet. Now, the fundamental point here is that um, all microbes love to live on and love to ferment sugar and carbohydrates. And you know, that, for example, explains why diabetics are particularly susceptible to infection. Why? They run a high blood sugar. That sugar exudes into the lungs. It exudes into the nasal passages. It exudes onto the skin. It exudes into the waterworks. And microbes um, love that and, and, and make themselves at home and start fermenting and become infectious. So 
Um, and this is a fundamental difference between human metabolism and microbial metabolism. Humans are very interesting in this respect. They, have a, they can run on two fuels. Humans can run on fats and they can run on carbohydrates. But microbes can only run on carbohydrates. So the starting point is don't feed the little wretches. Starve them out. Eat a ketogenic diet because by eating that, um, you are not feeding microbes. By eating a ketogenic diet, which is high in fat and high in fiber, you are feeding the friendly microbes in the gut. Now, the friendly microbes in the gut, they ferment fiber. The unfriendly micro microbes, they ferment sugars and carbohydrates. So as soon as you do um, a ketogenic diet, you immediately benefit your gut flora. We, now, we can't, we can't get a huge amount of energy from fiber. We can get some energy from fiber, but we can get a lot of energy from fat. Fat is a very um, energy-dense molecule, but the most important thing about fat is it can't be fermented. You know, how do I know that? Well, it's not rocket science. I can leave a lump of lard in my fridge for months and months and months and it doesn't go off. You know, I can leave a bottle of olive oil in my shelf in the pantry for months and months and months and it doesn't go off. But if I leave a banana or an apple or a piece of fruit on the side, it goes rotten. Even in the fridge, it goes rotten over a, after a few weeks. That why? Because the bacteria and the yeast move in and they ferment it. So the starting point to treat almost any disease of Westerners and certainly any um, disease associated with infection is a ketogenic diet, a very low carbohydrate diet. Uh, and again, um, you wrote a book, The Paleo Ketogenic Diet, and a couple comments I want to make sure that the listener understands, that when you eat high qualities, quantities of protein, it's very important to have the fat there. Otherwise, just eating a lot of meat will raise, spike your insulin, which leads to inflammation, oxidative stress, and everything we're discussing. So if you're going to eat meat, you've got to have the fat with it. And to do this, you've got to have organic meat because fat is where a lot of the toxins store. So, um, and so the paleo ketogenic diet, uh, Sarah wrote a book on this. As I understand it, it consists of high fat, high fiber, low carb yep. carbs, low allergens, rich nutri micronutrients, low chemical and toxic burden, and uh, foods that are not addictive, such as gluten, etc. <clears throat> is that correct? <clears throat> is there any yep, thing that, more you'd like to add? And how does the paleo ketogenic diet differ from the ketogenic diet? Uh, well, the ketogenic diet, um, and, and the the, mo the biggest advocate of this is, of course, the Robert, um, the, the Dr. Atkins diet. He allows dairy products in his diet. Now, dairy products um, are, from an evolutionary perspective, they are meant to be consumed by young mammals. Now, the point here is that if young mammals don't grow very quickly, then they get predated um, by predators. They get eaten by predators. And so... All dairy products contain growth promoters. And, of course, growth promoters is not, are not good news if you wish to avoid cancer. So I don't like my patients eating dairy products because, A, because they're growth promoting, B, because they're major allergens, C, dairy products are also a major risk factor for heart disease. Why? Because the proportion of calcium to magnesium in dairy products is very high. Now, calcium and magnesium compete with each other for absorption. So if you eat a lot of 
dairy products, you induce a magnesium deficiency. Now, magnesium is just as important as, as calcium in, with respect to bone health, and I can show you references that show that dairy products are a major risk factor for osteoporosis, for example. So dairy products, okay, they might be you know, after the last war when um, um, you know, people were, were majorly deficient in, in calories and, and protein and, and micronutrients, that was a good start. But really and truly, dairy products in the, mo- in the modern life are hugely over-egged as a good source of nutri- nutrition, and I don't like my patients eating dairy products. Now, the second problem with the Atkins diet is that he recommends the use of artificial sweeteners. Now, the problem with artificial sweeteners is that the body is not stupid. If it tastes something sweet in the mouth, it will anticipate a sugar rush. And therefore, you will get all the malign hormonal responses to sweeteners as you do to sugar itself, i.e., sweeteners will spike insulin. What does insulin do? Lay down carbohydrates as fat, i.e., you get fat with them, and then in response to the insulin spike, then blood sugars drop and you become, you develop all the symptoms of hypoglycemia. So sweeteners are a no-no. Um, they do not replace, they are just as pernicious as sugar and indeed the artificial sweeteners are toxic in their own right. For example, um, aspartame, as you know, um, or you may call it aspartame, that is broken down in the liver um, to um, two very nasty chemicals, one of which is formaldehyde. And formaldehyde is a pesticide. It's a known neurotoxin. In fact, I had a patient um, um, who decided to do a diet called um, a slimming, I think it's a slimming world diet. And what this meant is she only had to eat packets of stuff. So she didn't have to cook, she didn't have to do any food preparation. All she had to do is eat so many packets of stuff every day to which she added water, I think. Anyway, she came to see me aged 39 and she had been diagnosed with motor neurone disease. Now, that is a very, very nasty progressive neurological deficit. It's most unusual to see that in somebody so young. When I took a history from her, she had done the, the lighter life swimming, um, slimming package and we worked out that she had consumed during the two years of that some kilograms of aspartame. And I have no doubt in my own mind that that's probably what triggered her motor neurone disease because it is so neurotoxic. And bless her, um, poor lady, she died two years later. So sweeteners are no substitute and extremely toxic in their own right um, and uh, and no substitute for sugar. So groundhog basic, groundhog acute, and groundhog chronic, the starting point for all of those things is a paleoketogenic diet. And then next point, modern, the trouble with modern agriculture, yes, it's very efficient. Yes, it produces loads of um, uh, uh, calories, but it's intrinsically deficient in good um, um, uh, vitamins, minerals, and essential fatty acids. So I have a, recommend a basic package of nutritional supplements um, that uh, contains all of those things. Yes, if you can eat organic, that's even better. I know it's very difficult to do and it's very expensive to do, but that will improve your nutritional status, uh, reduce your toxic load, but even an organic diet can be deficient. So my view is we should all be taking, very simply, a good multivitamin, a good multimineral, and um, some essential fatty acids, such as hemp oil. Next thing, sleep. 
sleep is so important for health. Um, it's, it's during sleep that the body heals and repairs and detoxes. In fact, um, the brain, so the brain, sleep is so essential. During sleep, the G lymphatics, the glymphatics open up and they detox the, the brain. And we know that one of the um, particles that drive neurological disease are called prions. Um, and we know that during sleep, these prions are cleared out of the brain. That's a very important factor to protect ourselves from developing Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Again, exercise, it's so important. We're intrinsically lazy. Um, you know, we do not exercise enough. We have to choose a window of time every week when we at least push ourselves to our limits. You know, walk very briskly uphill, make ourselves puff and pant, make ourselves sweat, get our pulse up to, well, at least 120. Well, the, 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 the pulse rate would depend on your age. If you're, um, as you get older, you don't want to push yourself so much. But um, simple things like that um, put in place, done well, um, are highly protective against any infection. But then we have what I call groundhog acute. Um, and groundhog acute is what we should do at the first symptom of any infection. Now, my favorite tool in this respect is vitamin C. Yeah. Um, vitamin C, um, uh, completely safe, very well researched, potential for side effects zero, potential for good results in a very, very high indeed. And the point here is that um, it's humans, fruit bats, and guinea pigs can't make their own vitamin C. Now, I'm sitting here next to my little dog, Nancy, my best friend. Um, she, too, has a paleo diet. The reason she never gets scurvy or she can't get scurvy is because dogs can make their own vitamin C. You know, I'm sitting here looking out at some sheep outside and some cows and my horses. They can all make their own vitamin C. But say it's humans, fruit bats, and guinea pigs, they can't make their own vitamin C. And, um, and that is a, is a major disaster from, a, from an evolutionary perspective. But the point here is vitamin C is one of those very useful tools. Why? Vitamin C kills all bacteria, all viruses, all fungi. Side effects? Well, it has no side effects. It's completely safe to use. And the key here is the dose. Uh, everybody, of course, wants to know the simple things. You know, oh, well, how much vitamin C do I need to do this? And the answer is, I don't know. The key is you have to take vitamin C to bowel tolerance. Um, and the need for vitamin C will vary from person to person, from age to age, and from diet to diet. Because the first thing vitamin C does is it starts to, when you start to take it, is it starts to clean up the fermenting gut. Now, I'm going to jump sideways now because I've skipped ahead of myself. But with respect to normal gut function, the upper gut should be near sterile digesting gut so that we can deal with fat and protein. And then the lower gut, either the colon, should be a fermenting gut. And the lower gut is responsible for fermenting fiber. And that supports the gut microbiome, which is an essential part of being well. Now, what vitamin C does is as you swallow it, it will contact kill any microbes that may be in the upper gut. And if you've got a lot of them, then you have, as I call it, upper fermenting gut, which might include Helicobacter pylori. It might include parasites. It might include small bowel bacterial overgrowth. 
So vitamin C is a very useful tool for dealing with all those conditions. But with respect to acute infection, 90% of all microbes come in through the mouth. Either they're eaten with food or they are inhaled. They get stuck onto sticky mucus in the nose and the upper respiratory tract. Um, That mucus is then coughed up and swallowed, i.e., 90% 90% of those infections should end up in the stomach. Now, the point here is if we use vitamin C, then A, those microbes are contact killed in the stomach, and B, if you take enough vitamin C, you will get diarrhea, and that physically washes them out from the gut. And that is a wonderful defense against all infections. And what's so interesting about the body is that if the infection is systemic, then the body will absorb that vitamin C from the gut uh, in order to deal with systemic infection, i.e. the bowel tolerance of vitamin C, i.e. the dose you need before you start to get diarrhea, the bowel tolerance increases massively. Now, this is not my work. This is work done by some much cleverer doctors like um, 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 Dr. Cathcart and Dr. Frederick Klenner um, who use vitamin C in high doses for decades. And one of my favorite quotes is um, Dr. Klenner's quote, where he says, the patient should get large doses of vitamin C in all pathological conditions while the physician ponders the diagnosis. I <laughs> don't wait and don't wait until the symptoms progress and you have a uh, full-blown urinary tract infection or you have a full-blown gastroenteritis or you have a full-blown uh, chest infection. Take vitamin C straight away. Now, this is something we now, question, is the level of uh, vitamin C for bowel tolerance, is that kind of a measure of the infectious load? Correct. And it's actually, I have to say, that is a very useful clinical tool because you can assess somebody's total infectious load and total fermenting gut load through their bowel tolerance. You know, we can flip the logic on its head. The more sick a patient is, the larger the dose of vitamin C they need to acquire bowel tolerance. Flip that on its head, and it becomes a useful clinical tool. Now, if we take too much, we could have what you call offensive wind. That's a halfway house. The point here is, um, uh, and this, this is another useful clinical tip to allow one to get to bowel tolerance. Um, um, if you take, I mean, the... And this was some of this work was actually done by Linus Pauling, very clever man, won two Nobel Prizes. In fact, he was only beaten for a third Nobel Prize by Watson and Crick. <laughs> but um, he reckoned that we need, on average, between 4 and 15 grams of vitamin C a day. Now, the recommended daily dose of vitamin C is 30 milligrams, a tiny dose. Now, that will stop you getting scurvy, but it will not... Um, give you optimum health. So you, um, we need grams of vitamin C. That's thousands of milligrams. Now, people often turn around and say to me, my goodness, that's a massive dose, isn't it? I don't think so. It's much safer than sugar. And you know, there are millions of people out there consuming hundreds of grams of sugar every day. So vitamin C is gloriously safe. And yes, um, the bowel tolerance is a, is, a, is a very, very useful measure. Now, isn't the mechanism of this that sugar is a similar shape to vitamin C, and so vitamin C is grabbed by mistake, starving the microbes? Well, that's my idea. Now, I haven't seen that proven in um, a scientific paper, but it makes very good 
sense. It's biologically plausible. I mean, I've looked all over the place for mechanisms by which vitamin C is effective, and there are, there are a few suggestions. But the point is, this very well explains the bowel tolerance mechanism. It's biologically plausible, and um, it, it fits in clinical practice. And, and you know, as an aside, uh, this is where cancer cells are very similar to uh, bacterial cells because they too can only run on sugars and carbohydrates. Now, not my words, um, um, but the words of um, a German physiologist um, whose name won't pop into my head as I'm saying this, um, who has pointed out um, that um, 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 cancer cells can only um, run on um, sugars and carbohydrates. And by um, uh, using bowel tolerance doses of um, uh, vitamin C, that's a very good treatment for cancer. So the, the, the bottom line here, you know, we can't do any harm with this. Uh, and, the, and the potential is that there may be um, uh, many um, uh, side effects of, well, not side effects, but um, uh, other aspects of vitamin C that are very helpful for general health. So it sounds like uh, just for general maintenance, even if we're not aware of any critters causing us trouble, is to be on the paleo-ketogenic diet, uh, vitamin C, and then uh, it just sounds like good basic health maintenance for everybody, not just people that are worried about chronic diseases, acute diseases, or inflammation. Is that correct? Absolutely. That is absolutely right. And, you know, and again, if anybody starts to doubt that um, for a moment, uh, remind yourself that uh, vitamin C is a vitamin, i.e. we can't live without it. Human beings cannot make it, and therefore we have to use our brains to get it. And the dose, I mean, goats, for example, there have been very good studies showing that goats, when they get sick, they upgrade their own body's endogenous production of vitamin C, so they produce about 15 grams a day, you know, which by most people's reckoning seems to be like a big dose. We should do the same. We should copy that. Uh, we should take you know, a bowel tolerance dose of vitamin C for any acute, any chronic infection um, in order to remain well. I mean, it, the awful thing is... Um, um, Humans have evolved you know, a, a life that gets us to child-rearing age. And if, I mean, if I die now, nature doesn't care because um, I passed on my Olympic torch of uh, genetic uh, succession to my daughters and it's up to them to reproduce. So as we get older, in order to stay, to stay fit and well, we have to box clever. We have to use our brains. And guess what? I'm enjoying life. You know, I want to live to a good old age. And to achieve that, I know I've got to use vitamin C. So I take about 8 or 10 grams a day. Guess what? I haven't had a cold for 35 years um, because I've taken that sort of dose. At the first hint of any uh, infection, I take 10 grams every hour until my bowel empties. And, and, and that's the end of any infection that I may have. So I'm trying to keep my infectious load as low as reasonably possible. Everybody can do that. You know, I don't have to have a special prescription to get vitamin C. Anybody can, vitamin, can take vitamin C. And we should all be taking it all the time because as we age, we acquire infections. I mean, just give you an example of that. Just look at me. Um, I mean, my DNA is about 15% retrovirus. You know, so is yours. We've, we all inherited that from our parents when we were born. I was inoculated with the Salk polio vaccine and therefore uh, between, I think it's 50, 
67 and 66. So I shall be carrying simian virus 40, which is a known carcinogen. Guess what? I had various herpes viruses when I was um, uh, a child, like chickenpox and, and cold sores. So guess what? You know, I will be carrying those herpes viruses. You know, when I was a, a teenager, I was a bit spotty. So I may be carrying propionobacterium. And, you know, and at least 90% has been infected with Epstein-Barr virus um, because it's so ubiquitous. So the point is, we're all carrying infectious load. And those microbes are lurking in our bodies. Our immune systems are keeping them at bay. Guess what? I want to keep them. I want my immune system to be strong and keep them at bay. And there are many, many chronic diseases that are associated with Epstein-Barr virus. You know, there are many cancers that are associated with Epstein-Barr virus. There are over 33 autoimmune diseases that are associated with Epstein-Barr virus. And, of course, I see many patients with chronic fatigue syndrome, and it's very often Epstein-Barr virus-driven. So that is a very particular nasty. So what I'm saying is don't wait for those microbes to rear their ugly heads and drive disease. Keep them at bay now with the diet, you know, with good healthy lifestyle, with good sleep, and with vitamin C. And the idea here is that, you know, as I call it, groundhog chronic, i.e. the things that we should be putting in place when we have chronic infection, and probably the things we should be putting in place as we age, will handicap the infection and stack the odds in, in our favor. So um, as we age, we inevitably inquire infections. We should all move on to what I call groundhog chronic, which is the same as groundhog basic, but we have to be more disciplined about it. You know, maybe we have to take supplements to help us to detox. Um, um, iodine, for example, is a very helpful um, a supplement. Unlike vitamin D, uh, a big pardon, like vitamin C, it, it multitasks to detox, to fight infection. Um, we should always be prepared. So we, we should always have vitamin C in stock so that the first sign of any infection, we can... We can fight that. We should be disciplined about sleep. You know, it's boring going to bed early, but, well, uh, but you know, loss of sleep is a major risk factor for many um, 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 degenerative diseases. Again, exercise is important to keep our muscles strong and to prevent osteoporosis. Um, um, we should um, get good at cooking because so many herbs, so many spices have antimicrobial um, um, properties. Keep warm uh, is really important. That uh, helps us to, to, to fight infection. My special interest, of course, is in mitochondria. And mitochondria, as I describe, are the engines of our car. They help. They are an essential part of energy delivery mechanisms. You know, guess what? If you can't supply energy to your immune system, then it can't function normally. One of the analogies I use is that our immune system is our standing army. You know, guess what? If you don't supply your army with raw materials and with energy, it can't fight. You know, this is not rocket science. Um, and so looking after our mitochondria by feeding them nutritional supplements is a very important part of being well. And then, of course, mitochondria may be going slow because um, they're poisoned by something. And as we get older, we acquire a toxic load, and therefore the detox regimes become um, increasingly important. And uh, um, my view is we should be taking a good package of nutritional supplements because they help us to detox. So does iodine, so does vitamin C, so does exercise, and so on. And so many people, when they come, by the time they come to see me, they're on prescription medication. And 
all prescription medications are potential toxins and they overload the system and ultimately poisonous. You know, again, as we age, our adrenal glands and our thyroid glands go down and attention to detail may be needed there to improve, to help adrenal function and help thyroid function and so on and so forth. And finally, and maybe last but not least, as I call it, we have to use our brains. Um, um, you know, we can avoid uh, unnecessary infectious exposure, for example, unprotected sex, for example, travel, you know, <laughs> travel is a wonderful thing it's a huge privilege but if you go to foreign countries you risk picking up other infections from bacteria which may be normally present in that environment but which our immune system is not trained to deal with so for example when the England cricketers go and play India um, they're obviously going to eat an Indian diet and so many of them will suffer from um, Delhi belly as it's called not because because their gut just hasn't seen the microbes that Indian people have grown up and lived with it's just a different um, um, microbial environment so um, Travel is potentially dangerous. Um, and of course, as I call it, circumspection. Don't symptoms suppress with drugs. Why? Because we have symptoms for very good reasons. As you mentioned earlier on, symptoms are there to protect us from ourselves. And I have to say, one of the things that concerns me hugely is vaccination. And we now know that many um, diseases are vaccination driven, and you have to think very, very carefully um, before. Um, accepting any vaccination. It has to be for very good reason. Um, and of course, foreign travel often entails vaccination, which is potentially risky. So as I say, using the brain um, is also an important part of our um, defense against infectious disease. I've got a couple of questions. For sleep, does it have to be continuous or if you get like six hours at night, would a two-hour nap? Because some people say all the rebuilding and nourishment comes at the end and, you know, at the very end of the sleep. Uh, well, um, I have to say I don't know as much about sleep as I would like to. Uh, what I do know is that um, the uh, average requirement is about eight to nine hours of sleep in every 24 hours. Now, I don't think it matters terribly when we get that sleep, but the key thing is, do you wake refreshed? Now, I have to say, I'm a great advocate of power napping in the middle of the day, and guess what? That's what primitive man would have done. You know, he um, evolved in a hot um, uh, environment um, in, in probably East Africa, and during the middle of the day, he would have rested and slept. Now, it may be that as humans migrated north, um, uh, a major problem for them was surviving the winter. And we became farmers. And guess what? We had to work extremely long hours during the summer in order to gather in the harvest. And without the harvest, we wouldn't have survived the winter. And it may be we evolved a slightly different sleeping pattern in order to allow us to work very long hours in the summer and, of course, then in the winter, go into hibernation. So guess what? Our requirements for sleep increases during the winter and during sleep. You know, we hunker down, we shut down our metabolism, we run cold, we don't spend energy, we go into semi-hibernation. But then in the summer, as I say, we, we need to, to, to work long hours. So, yes, I think sleep, well, there's no question sleep is an absolute essential. I don't think it matters too much when you get it, but the key thing is 
wake feeling refreshed. Don't have to be woken by an alarm clock. Don't wake and drag yourself out of bed thinking, oh, God, I need another four hours. Um, if you're waking refreshed, then you're getting sufficient sleep. Another question is, what form of vitamin C? I mean, I imagine there's some vitamin Cs that the body doesn't recognize because they're probably not the right isomer or whatever. So what form of vitamin C do you recommend? Well, I'm a great fan of getting um, uh, the, the cheapest because that's affordable and that's doable. And I just use bog standard ascorbic acid. Um, and it's, it's good for two reasons. A, it's obviously vitamin C, but B, it's an acid. An acid helps to keep the upper fermenting gut clean and tidy, as I call it. Now, the only problem I run into with ascorbic acid is it's made through fermenting corn. And some of my very corn allergic patients will not tolerate that. And in that event, then I I recommend vitamin C that either comes from Sago um, or from another source. But ascorbic acid is the cheapest and the best, and that's what I recommend as a first line. Well, in the U.S., 95% of the corn is GMO, so I see a problem. Right well, there. that is, a, that, indeed, I do agree with you, that is another problem. Um, uh, uh, so thank you for that. <laughs> okay, so what other recommendations do you have for the either well, acute um, or the chronic um, concerns? Uh, well, um, um, uh, another very good antimicrobial is iodine. And... Um, Again, we can use this very simply um, in a salt pipe. Now, let, let me explain. I say most microbes come in through the, through the gut, and vitamin C is extremely good at keeping uh, the gut free from infection. But many microbes end up in the airways. Chronic sinusitis, for example, is a major cause of problems. Chronic lung infection is a major cause of problems. And for the airways, then the best antimicrobial is iodine. Why? Again, like vitamin C, it contact kills all microbes. There is no microbe that is resistant to iodine. Secondly, it's extremely safe. Um, uh, The potential for harm is minimal. I mean, one example of how effective it is, is that for the purposes of surgical operations, what do surgeons use? They use iodine. They paint it onto the skin, and guess what? It kills all microbes. It's the cheapest and it's the best. So the way to get iodine into the airways is to inhale it. And um, the uh, mode that I like to use um, for achieving this is a salt pipe. Now, salt pipes, literally, they're just little pots, um, little um, clay pipes uh, that are full of sea salt, and you just inhale through them. Again, there's an interesting story here because uh, this was developed by a a Polish physician who noticed that miners in Poland work in the salt mines, had very good lungs. Miners work in the coal mines, of course, had terribly damaged lungs. But it's a very um, simple and easy and cheap form of administration. And you just drizzle a couple of drops of Lugol's iodine. Now, Lugol's iodine has been available for two or three hundred years. It's very safe. A couple of drops of that and um, just inhale through the salt pipe. And uh, the point about that is iodine is volatile. It coats all surfaces of the lungs, of the sinuses, of the nose, and contact kills all microbes. So that is a very helpful intervention. And interesting, I've just had a, a patient recently with bronchiectasis, which is a chronic lung infection. Just went to see her regular physician at the local hospital who looked at a lung function test, looked at her chest x-rays, and said to her, this is a miracle. What have you done? <laughs> and the only thing she had changed in her regime was she was using an iod- a salt pipe with Lugol's iodine drizzled into that. She'd 
had been able to stop inhalers as a result of that and her lung function tests were better than they had ever been for the preceding, I think, 30 years. So iodine is a very useful tool. It contact kills all microbes and as a much um, infection of the upper airways, chronic sinusitis, uh, pharyngitis, laryngitis, is uh, microbial driven. So iodine is another very helpful tool. Okay, so for example, if somebody has bleeding gums, which is an indicative of an infection, other than good oral hygiene, what would you recommend? Well, the, the starting point is don't feed the, um, uh, the infections in the mouth with sugars and carbohydrates. And for many people, if they just do a ketogenic diet and stop feeding those microbes, you rapidly kill them. Sometimes for microbes that are well entrenched, then yes, you'll need to, to use other tools. And again, I would use iodine, um, uh, Lugol's iodine, a few drops in a, a dessert spoon of water, swill it around the mouth and hold that in the mouth as long as you can. Why? Because iodine will penetrate but it, uh, into the gums very efficiently. It gets in between the, um, uh, the gap between the gums and the tooth and helps to kill infection. If you have got deep-rooted infection in the root canals, then that would be, that's more difficult to dislodge and you may well need you know, a dentist who's experienced in that to remove foreign bodies, um, change fillings, or whatever. So it, it depends on where the level of infection is. But gingivitis is a disease of people eating sugars and carbohydrates. That's the primary issue there. Okay. Um, so, okay, it sounds like the paleoketogenic diet. Um, is, it is it important to be in ketosis or can you just be close to it or go in and out? Um, it's, the closer you can get, the better it is. Uh, and I give my patients keto sticks so they can test their urine. And the point here is that any amount of ketones will do. So if they're just showing a trace ketosis, what that tells me is that they are fueling their body on fat, and that's all that need, needs to be done. Okay. Because sometimes, I mean, things might be a little sweet, but they're not terribly sugar-laden. And, okay, I guess those things need to be used sparingly. Mm. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Well, you know, primitive man was no paragon of virtue, and he would have the occasional feast. And guess what? I have the occasional feast as well. But the occasional feast is acceptable. That's normal. That's natural. And the body can deal with that. But it's the, con the problem with modern Western diets is the continual drip, drip, drip of daily sugars, daily carbohydrates. That's what, that's what causes the problems. And those microbes living in the mouth get a free lunch. And guess what? Uh, they multiply like mad and cause infections, dental plaque, and all the issues associated with that. Okay. Um, uh, now, any other approaches? I mean, I'll be, uh, what would you recommend in addition to what you've already mentioned? We've got three minutes left, so um, any final comments, advice, or well, how to the, get a hold of you? Well, the, the, the bottom line is the basic thing done really well gets you a long way there. Um, so do, do, do the basics well, but then there are many herbal preparations that are um, very effective. And we know, for example, there are things like the Cowden Protocol, which are very helpful for some people, for example, who have Lyme disease. Um, heat is a very good um, treatment for all infection. You know, what does the body do when it fights infection? It runs a fever. But in order to generate that heat to run a fever to kill infection, you've got to have good energy delivery mechanisms. And that's another 
big story that I address in uh, my book, Chronic Fatigue Syndrome is Mitochondria, not Hypochondria, because patients with chronic fatigue do not have good energy delivery mechanisms. And if you can't run, if you can't keep warm, if you can't maintain your body temperature, if you're running cold, that will open the doors to infection. And furthermore, the immune system does not have the energy in order to fight infection. So, you know, temperature issues are very important. Uh, Light, again, light is a very good way of of killing microbes. Um, And during the 1930s, um, in pre-antibiotic days, people could go to Switzerland, they could sunbathe at the top of the mountain, and that had a very high um, uh, res- you know, uh, good result. And many patients were cured simply by sunshine. Um, very powerful, powerful treatment. Um, uh, and there are probably other things that I haven't discovered. But and it may be that some people will need antibiotics because they can't access these other treatments. But what I'm trying to say is, if you get in place these basic, simple, but you know, simple for me to say very difficult to do. If you get in place these interventions, that will get you an awful long way. And for many, that's all they need to do to recover. So I want to thank you for this. I would suggest to the audience, Sarah has written many wonderful books, including Medicine and Culture, which will talk about chronic fatigue syndrome, etc. She's written um, about the PK diet, which you can get more uh, information on this diet, as well as some wonderful recipes. They are delicious, folks. The Infection Game, which discusses uh, the immune process, viruses, bacteria in more detail. And uh, she's just got a wealth of books and she's got a lot of videos online. So um, I recommend that the listener go find these things, learn, because you can help yourself and treat yourself very readily and easily, um, you know, and it's, not without, and it's not expensive. So I advise you to go do this research so you can help yourself, your others. You can inform your clinicians so they can help others as well. And above all, be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.